On the Record with Gavin Riley. Brought to you by PwC on News Talk. I mentioned last week that no one had seen Sightner Sound of Donald Fallon since Pat's had their late winner away to CSK Sophia. Um, I'm sort of, I'm, I'm almost comforted that there's a supporter of another <laughs> soccer team that hasn't had the brilliant, uh, a brilliant week uh, back in studio. You can hear Donald chuckling away there. Donald, good to have you back uh, this week uh, and commiserations on, on Pat's departure from, from uh, European competition. Uh, you're with us today to talk about Operation Banner. Uh, Operation Banner uh, is marking its anniversary today, August 14th. Uh, it would become the longest continuous deployment in British military history. But it started out being this uh, very intended brief peacekeeping mission of sorts, supposed to be a limited operation, which the authorities believed might only be maybe six months. But it transformed 1969 into this major turning point between British and Irish relations. Talk to us about British history in 1969, because that was the end of an era in a lot of ways. Yeah, happy happy birthday, Operation Banner. You know, And in, in 1969, when it was launched, who knew in British public life that it would go on and on and on? And I think it's probably fair to say, you know, the 1960s for Britain, uh, they ended kind of abruptly in the summer of 1969, you know, an age of innocence passed. Mm. That was the year recalled for the, the final appearance of the Beatles, uh, a London rooftop concert, the Isle oh, yeah. of Wight Festival, yeah. the appearance of a young Bob Dylan. But there was something brewing uh, in the province of Ulster on the neighbouring island. And look, the lives of young British people uh, were about to become a lot more serious. You know, by, by 1972, 25,700 of them, you know, primarily 19, 20, 21 year old kids, mm. uh, were deployed in, in Northern Ireland as, as British soldiers. So, you know, nobody believed that that was possible in the summer of 1969. They felt, as you said in the introduction, this was a, a, a quick in and out job, you know, sold as a peacekeeping or, or peace restoration mission. And I suppose what we're doing today in this slot is looking at the, the very first days of Operation Banner in Ulster. It's fascinating, you know, surprising mm. responses on the ground from the public, uh, cups of tea where they might least expect them a couple of years <laughs> uh, later on. There weren't many cups of teas being handed out to British soldiers in the Falls Road in 1975. But in 1969, that's how it, it, it was. So, yeah, we're going to go into some kind of first-hand testimonies mm. of these you know, young British soldiers who found themselves on the, on the ground. Yeah, maybe to set the context of what was going on in 1969 that required Required the, the the British to come in and out. By the way, I'm just sort of struck by the naivety of them thinking that it was a short term mission because you always remember <laughs> the start of World War One and they were like, "It's grand. We'll we'll have these guys beaten. We'll be home by Christmas." And it was four years. Yeah, before the, the, the first recruitment posters during the first World War said, "Don't miss your chance." You know, yeah. like it was it was a great boys' <laughs> it's a very adventure na- it's story. A very narrow window to get into this four years war, you know. <laughs> um, but for a lot of us, 1969, uh, and maybe with with the context of the troubles brewing, it's probably best remembered for one of the most important moments in the history of Irish broadcasting. Yeah, 19. 19- 69 means kind of different things on, on both sides of the Irish Sea. So in Britain, I think for a lot of young people in Britain, it was their introduction to Northern Ireland. They hadn't really thought about it too much, to be honest. Like the border campaign in the 50s hadn't hadn't really made a massive impact yeah, in the British that, press. That's what they thought of as their troubles. Yeah, that, that time, was that yeah. was the troubles and it had passed. And, you know, the age of the Beatles and the miniskirt and everything else had arrived since. And life seemed pretty innocent in the 60s. But now in the late 60s, place names like Bally Murphy... You know, the bog side, places that you'd never heard of if you grew up in Newcastle or Manchester or Salford or Liverpool. You know, they were now becoming daily news reports. And it was a dramatic time here. I mean, it was defined by one of the most dramatic Irish television broadcasts ever. Good evening. It is with deep sadness that you and I, Irish men and women of goodwill, have learned of the tragic events which have been taking place in Derry and elsewhere in the north in recent days. Irishmen in every part of this island have made known their concern at these events. This concern is heightened by the realization that the spirit of reform and intercommunal cooperation 
has given way to the forces of sectarianism and prejudice. All people of goodwill must feel saddened and disappointed at this backward turn in events and must be apprehensive for the future. Like, we've, we've almost become immune to it now, the idea, particularly in the last two or three, two and a half years, of like, Taoiseach addressing the nation. But in the early days of broadcasting, to have a Taoiseach sort of breaking into the schedule and going, right, lads, I need to talk to you about something serious. Yeah. Like, that, that was a very solemn moment. Yeah, and even even I remember the, the first time that the Taoiseach went to the, to the nation during the, during the pandemic. It is still a powerful thing, you know, when yeah. it happens and it hasn't happened in a while. And remember when you listen to that Jack Lynch clip, how new that kind of broadcasting was in the Republic. Television had only really arrived in the 60s. So that must have been a, a very frightening thing to listen to. That's the most important address to the Irish public mm. by a political leader uh, since De Valera, you know, following this, the, the Second World War, his rebuttal to, to Churchill, his, his diss track. Yes, you know, back yeah, to yeah. Winston, Winston <laughs> Churchill. And when you listen to Jack I don't Lynch, think I've ever heard that <laughs> De Valera's been, been described as a diss track. But that's, that's a brilliantly 21st the, century way of putting the it. The brilliant, brilliant put down of Winston Churchill. But you know, when, when, when we listen to Jack Lynch there, you can imagine the panic in people hearing that on television. You know, mm. that we, we can no longer stand by, he says, you know, as, as the violence in the civil against the civil rights movement in the north uh, is escalating. So 1969, it's, it's a powder keg, if you will, yeah. uh, on both of these islands in very different ways. Uh, there was a lot of ambiguity around what Jack Lynch meant at the time when he said "no longer stand idly by," and there was this this premise that maybe we were about to launch some sort of military incursion, and that was then immediately played down as being no, that's not what we're talking about. But things were actually so bad that there was within Leinster House this serious consideration of direct intervention north of the border. Yeah, the facts of history are on the 13th of August, so yesterday being the anniversary of that, the cabinet in, in Leinster House found itself debating something without precedent. Neil Blaney, the Minister for Agriculture, he suggests sending a, an armed force across the border. And politicians debate this you know, in, mm. Leinster, in Leinster House privately. Should we do this or not? And their hope is that that will trigger a kind of UN intervention. So it's not that they want to take the North and yeah. you know, you know, build a, a nation once again by force. What they want to do is basically force the deployment of a UN peacekeeping force. Mm. But little do they know, as they're talking about this in, in, in the corridors of power in Leinster House, at the very same time, in London, they're asking very similar questions. And there's no great desire, I think, in London to put soldiers on the ground in Northern Ireland yeah. because optically it doesn't look particularly good, but there's a sense they might have to. There is this question, though, as to whether Lynch's speech, first of all, whether he was actually indicated that there might have been some consideration to sending boots on the ground across the border. But then there's also this whole aspect of, was it all really a bluff? Yeah, it's a weird speech, the way it's remembered, too, because I was only reading what he said word for word, and the word idly isn't there. So you know, ah, history and memory right, that's are weird one of those things. things that so I just sort of inserted there. But it, yeah. yeah, but it, it, everyone says it. I I say it. Stand yeah. idly by. So I don't know where, where that came from later on. But this this idea that we were on the verge of, of an invasion. I mean, that yeah. was played up by by Northern Unionists. Mm. Uh, Edward Long, Longwell has done a lot of work yeah, on it. Just, don't forget, by the way, just before you read that Edward Longwell quote, it's worth just remembering that this being pre-1998, this is still a time when the Republic claimed jurisdiction Absolutely. over the six counties. So the the idea that, you know, a Fianna Fáil nationalist Republican government, it wasn't really beyond the, the pale totally. to think that we were actually going to send boots across the land to yeah. to claim what we thought was ours anyway. Articles 2 and 3 are, are still sitting there in, in, in the Constitution. And look, an, an MP for, for South Antrim stands up in, in, in Stormont and he says, you know, Mr Lynch's order to move Republican troops, like calling the, the Southern Army Republican yeah. troops, yeah. to the Ulster border is similar to the action of Hitler in 1938 over the Sudan 
Manhattan land. So they're they're really playing up this idea that this could, you know, actually happen. And and I mean the armored cars, as we know, they never crossed the border and mm. they were never going to, but the very idea that they could was powerful. Uh, unbeknownst to those in Leinster House, as you mentioned, in London they are still having this parallel discussion at the same time when they're contemplating whether they should send their own boots on the ground as something of a peacekeeping force. They identify some key risks and some of the key protagonists, but what is fascinating is not so much who was on their agenda, who was on their radar, yeah. so much as who is not on their radar. So we've really got insight into, into the British thinking in kind of 1969 from their archives and who, who they're looking at on, on the ground. And they just don't regard the IRA as a major player in the developments at all. One, one historian of the time says, the Republican movement consisted of about 120 men. Despite its ties to a proud historical lineage, the IRA had become basically dormant. In Belfast, its total arsenal was a machine gun, a pistol, and some ammunition. So wow. I mean, this is this is not the biggest That's elephant their assessment in the, of in the room. IRA. It's not an elephant in the room, and it would be kind of into the subsequent 1970s before there's kind of open conflict between the, these two camps, the mm. British Army and, and, and the IRA. So the focus of the British really in 1969 is how do we get in there and how do we contain kind of what you might call reactionary forces? You know, people who are attacking the civil rights movement. They're viewed as the key protagonists in the in the worsening situation. And basically, if you want to be crude about it, as far as they're concerned, the job is how do we keep these two communities at arm's length? That's yeah. the priority, at least at first. Uh, we know a little bit about what it was like for those first soldiers um, from their own oral histories, which thankfully have, have survived to the present day. Um, what is almost... You don't want to get too emotive when you're talking about these things because you're, you're talking about something which kicks off into a very volatile situation very quickly. But there's almost a pathos or a sadness to it all because a lot of those who were deployed ostensibly to keep the peace on the streets hadn't a clue where they were. No, I mean, they're kids, they're kids. And when you read the oral histories, it's their youth, it's their lack of familiarity uh, with the terrain. I mean, they might have well, might as well have been on, on another continent, you know, never mind, yeah. just on the neighbouring island. Yeah. And to quote one of them, one British soldier who finds himself in, in, in Northern Ireland for the first time in his life on the 14th of August, 1969, we were briefed by a tall RUC officer. We called them green bottles because of the bottle green uniforms, who was about 45. We were kids of 19 and 20 and we thought how ancient he was at the time. He told us that there were only two kinds of people in his Belfast, prods and tags. He briefed us on a big wall map and showed us the Shank Hill, Prod, Falls Road, Tag, Crumlin Road, Prod, Divis Street, Tag, Turf Lodge, Tag, and of course the notorious Catholic housing area, the Ballymurphy Estate. He didn't even pretend to be neutral and was clearly anti-Catholic and this may well have influenced some of us. Like imagine you've, <laughs> you, no you clue, think? you've no clue where you are and you have this, you know, or you see a man pointing out the topography of Belfast on a map mm. uh, in, a, in, a, in a police station to you. So imagining these kind of teenagers thrown into a world they knew absolutely nothing about, maybe even 72 hours earlier, is extraordinary, isn't it? Not to sound anything like an apologist for what some of those people that were deployed there in 1969 were eventually uh, culpable for and what they were eventually responsible for, but it is very striking that they showed up knowing absolutely nothing of the area and were clearly moulded then by the local oh, totally. security forces and how that influenced what they later became. Um, others remembered, uh, this is where the story gets a little bit surreal given what, what went on subsequently. Others remembered the never-ending cups of tea offered by the Catholic mammals yeah. of Belfast. Another, another soldier in the same oral history book says it was something of a honeymoon as we patrolled <sighs> wow. around the Falls Road, Divis Street. Uh, and we got on famously, what a great line, we got on famously with the Catholics. Yeah. Uh, and the areas that we patrolled, he writes, they were very working class, slum terracing, outside labs and the like. And it was like a lot of the places, most of the lads, me included, had been brought up. Mm. But that abiding memory of these young Tommies, if you want to call them that, uh, is, you know, it's the endless cups of tea, the biscuits, yeah. uh, the sandwiches, the strange acceptance of a sort mm. from particularly women 
uh, on, on, on the Falls Road. Yeah, again, you're sort of struck with the uh, sort of the common uh, heritage, even if not common faith, but this idea that they are, if they are lads from Newcastle and Manchester and Salford and Liverpool and they're all used to growing up in, in some degree of urban poverty and squalor and outhouses and everything else and that they feel that those that they are going to protect are kindred spirits in a way and then what happens. And of course, in, in, in less than one year, all of that had soured and the relationship was a very different one. Yeah, with it, it, July of the following year, uh, there's the Falls Curfew, which is a kind of direct confrontation between these new kind of forces and the nationalist community. It's meant to be a search for arms on paper. It becomes something much broader. Four civilians are dead. One of them, particularly sad story, Charles O'Neill, he's an uh, invalided ex-serviceman, which is extraordinary, wow. you know, and he loses his life. Young amateur photographer documenting the scenes, shot dead as well. And in many ways, that falls curfew less than a year later. Mm. That's the end of any kind of view of these soldiers as a, as a neutral force on the ground, maintaining power, uh, maintaining order. They're no longer walking around, you know, chatting to the to the women of the streets. They're, they're moving around in armoured cars. And yet the, the sandwiches of 1969, they're replaced by the, the bin lids of 1970. If you go to the Ulster Museum, they have these bin lids on display, which, you know, women would bang on the streets to warn people of the imminent arrival of soldiers. So... Yeah. Isn't it extraordinary how quickly uh, things can change? Uh, fascinating stuff. The Ulster Museum, by the way, I think I've said it uh, at the conclusion of this slot a couple of times. I know that you, you spent some time up there, uh, you know, professionally for academia. But the Ulster Museum is an incredible museum because I always thought it was like a museum best of. That you yeah. could go and see some of the the social history of 20th century Northern Ireland, and you can go and see some dinosaur, and yeah. you can go and see some some <laughs> like some some dynastic Chinese pottery. Like it's all there. It's all well worth a visit uh, if you're ever up in that part of the world. Uh, Donald Fallon is the author of the Come Here to Me books and of Henrietta Street from Tenement to Suburbia. He's the presenter of the Three Castles Burning podcast as well on Dublin History, which you'll find anywhere you get your audio online. And I'm sure he'll be back in Inchicore possibly this afternoon, cheering on Pats against Sligo Rovers uh, in the League of Ireland. Who knows? On the record with Gavin Riley, Sunday morning at 11. Brought to you by PwC. Combining talent and technology, we're hardwired to find solutions. It all adds up to the new equation. On News Talk.